There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. There was a chance Michigan's primary races would be a pair of sleeper contests, with a sitting president in one race and a former president in the other. They've each already racked up wins by large or overwhelming margins. But Michigan has proven a bit livelier than expected. The media spotlight has fixated on the perpetual swing state with the still active, if lopsided, Republican primary between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, who won overwhelmingly Tuesday night. And I just want to thank everybody. You've been incredible. And I'm so proud of the results because they're far greater than anticipated. Look, I will continue to take the cuts and the bruises and the pain and the insults because I think America's worth it. All I ask is that you stand with me as I do it and that you be just as loud, not just in Michigan, but after Michigan, and take that voice all the way to the Super Tuesday states because it matters. That was Donald Trump on Tuesday night and Nikki Haley at a rally in Michigan on Monday. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden sweeps another contest, but the details are what matter. A protest vote against the president follows more than a month of real-life protests over how he's handled Israel's war against Hamas. Stop the genocide! We ain't going anywhere! We are going anywhere! So what happened in Michigan? And how much of the Democratic Party's base, led by young people and a sizable population of Arab-American voters, showed up to make sure President Biden heard their discontent? We get into that and all the latest after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from Lansing, Michigan, is Jordan Hermony. She's a Capitol reporter for Bridge, Michigan. That's a nonprofit newsroom. Jordan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the Republican race. Nikki Haley didn't win the primary in South Carolina, but she did better than the polls anticipated. She kept Donald Trump to slightly under 60 percent. Michigan was her next chance to build on that showing. What were the results on the Republican side? 
Right. Well, if she was hoping to keep the former president, Donald Trump, under 60 percent, then last night was not her night, so to speak. Uh, The Associated Press called the race for Trump right at 9 p.m. as uh, some polls finished closing in Michigan. Um, Trump ended up netting about 68 percent of the vote in Michigan to her 26.6. She had a meh showing, to be frank. Um, You know, Trump pretty handedly won the state, uh, though he did not get maybe as great of a showing as he could have in some suburban areas. I'm thinking like Kent County um, or or a, you know, small majority showed out. I shouldn't say majority, but a, a small showing did turn out for Nikki Haley in places like Macomb. Um, Trump did still win those places handedly. So it, it is looking like his ability to continue winning and potentially now become the inevitable uh, candidate to beat come November it's a train that's going to keep moving down the tracks. Now, you mentioned the showing in the suburbs for Nikki Haley. If Trump is the Republican nominee in November, what does his performance yesterday tell you about how he might do in the general election? Well, so that's a complicated question because at least in my own reporting and speaking with individuals who are in the in the suburbs, um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, Nikki Haley showed up in Troy and in Grand Rapids uh, over this last week. And that's in Oakland and Kent County. Those are places that rejected Trump in 2020. Um, and, and voters there, you know, they told me that if Trump is the nominee, they will likely end up voting for him again. So this is one of those instances where we're going to try to not put the cart before the horse. Um, like I said, Trump had a, a good showing there. Haley put up a fight. But if it comes down to Trump again versus Biden again, um, I, I have a feeling it's going to end up somewhat similarly to what uh, President Biden is seeing right now with that uh, uncommitted vote where individuals might hold out for now in the primary, but come November, that's going to be a a decision that they're going to need to come down on. I want to talk about that uncommitted vote in a moment, but we should note that election security was front and center in the 2020 election. It was an election where many people voted by mail and because they were real efforts to intimidate election officials before and after election day. And I'm thinking of when Trump supporters protested outside the ballot center in Detroit. Were there any voting disruptions that you saw in this primary? No, I mean, the the word that people were kind of throwing around on social media was sleepy. Mm. Um, you know, voter turnout was fine. Uh, many people did vote ahead of time. Uh, Michigan rolled out this year um, its early in-person voting, uh, which saw some modest uh, usage right now. Again, this was our first real big uh, statewide election that we were able to use it for. Um, so I, I'm not quite certain. Well, we got this message from Jody who writes, I live in suburban Detroit and I voted for Biden. However, I vote absentee and early before the Listen to Michigan campaign spoke out about choosing uncommitted. If I hadn't voted so early, I likely would have chosen uncommitted in that protest vote. Rather, if that protest campaign had been in the news earlier. So the Biden campaign really needs to be paying attention. The unequivocal support of Israel's behavior is a huge problem. We also heard from Melissa in Michigan, who writes, I debated whether or not to vote yesterday, but ultimately cast a ballot for President Biden. I do not agree with his handling of the war in Gaza, but I will certainly vote for him in November. We cannot allow Trump another turn. Joe Biden has won most contests so far by wide margins, 96 percent in South Carolina, about 64 percent in New Hampshire. How did he do in Michigan? 
Well, he secured uh, 81.1% of the vote in Michigan with about 98% of ballots counted. Um, But the uncommitted effort, it did have a modest showing. Uh, 13.3% of the Democratic primary voters did end up choosing uncommitted. Um, That's over 100,000 votes, which sounds like a very, you know, big number. But uh, the individuals who I've talked to, political scientists, um, you know, they, they're saying that that 13 percent, while it may sound like a lot, um, that number would have had to in order for the Biden campaign to potentially take it seriously, their concern seriously, their, their calls for a ceasefire. That number needed to be in the higher teens. It needed to be over 15. Some people were telling me as high as 25 percent because 100,000, again, big number, Joe Biden won Michigan uh, by 154,000. So that's, you know, a a big chunk. But much like I pointed out with Trump and Haley and voters who may be protesting Trump uh, by voting for Haley, those individuals are going to have to come home to the fact that Biden and Trump are are very likely going to be the individuals that we're going to be voting on come November. So while there will be individuals who no doubt do sit out, um, I've talked to some voters who say that, you know, if if Biden continues on as he is with his stance in the uh, Israel-Hamas war, that they won't be voting, uh, that they won't be voting for not just Biden, but won't be voting at all. Um, so he, like I said, he had a, a modest showing. This is definitely a statement that this campaign made to the Biden campaign. Um, whether that is going to be an enduring one and whether the Biden campaign is going to look at that and say we're going to change course, you know, remains to be seen. Because as I've, I've spoken with folks, his stance with Israel, uh, his standing with Israel, frankly, is popular with sects of the Democratic Party. It's popular with sects of the Republican Party who could be liable potentially as, as crossover voters. So it's looking at that, are we willing to forsake a larger plurality of voters for this 13% number. And the writing for a lot of people just isn't isn't on the wall. They're, they're not seeing that come to fruition. We got this message from Grant in Michigan who says, I voted uncommitted yesterday. It had some to do with the support of Arab Americans, but much more directed at the Democratic Party on how uncomfortable I am with voting for Mr. Biden. He has done a fantastic job in the last three plus years. However, I am frustrated that he has not decided to turn over the leadership role to other younger candidates, mostly frustrated with the Democratic officials that are not listening to us. Can you give us some insight into how younger voters are looking at this election in Michigan? Well, for younger voters, and frankly, I myself am among them. The very first time I personally was able to vote for president was with President Trump in 2016. So for many people my age, uh, they're not excited about the fact that this is the same election over and over again. Many young voters, they do only know from 2016 onwards that sort of political chaos that's been incurring on the Republican side and 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 from Democrats as well. Um, so, you know, younger voters, that's going to be a, a touch point that both parties, frankly, are, are going to need to make more of an effort in uh, because there's there's just this level of apathy with respect to this election. And what has the Biden campaign said since last night's win? Um, well, so they didn't really make much of a note towards the uncommitted effort. Um, you know, they they seem to just be soldiering on it as usual. Michigan is going to be a state that 
a campaign, be it Trump, be it Biden, is going to have to win if they want to win the presidency. So as I you know, said, the 13% number, it's big. The 80-something percent number is, is much bigger. And I think that's where the campaign is focused on right now, is keeping those voters, making sure that they are happy, and then making continued inroads as they can to recollect potentially that 13%, that protest vote, because it's it's going to come down to Biden and Trump in in November, and voters are going to need to be aware of that reality. That's Jordan Hermony. She's a reporter with Bridge Michigan covering state politics and policy. Jordan, thanks for joining us. We're going to head to a quick break, but coming up, we hear more about the campaign to vote uncommitted to protest President Biden's foreign policy. And we speak to a state Democratic leader who's voiced his desire to see President Biden call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? Money. Power. Tacos. White-collar crime. Green parties. Black reparations. More of the perspectives that make your world a more vibrant place. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from Seema in Michigan, who voted uncommitted. I will not be able to commit to a vote for Joe Biden unless he calls for a full and permanent ceasefire. I also think that uh, the U.S. needs to reevaluate its aid to Israel, and it needs to be cut due to its uh, practices against Palestinians. The campaign to vote uncommitted is the brainchild of several groups that have sprung up in recent months, including Listen to Michigan. Listen to Michigan drew support from a diverse swath of voters, but leading the charge is the Arab-American community. They make up a higher percentage of the population in Michigan than in any other state. Many of those communities are in Metro Detroit. Michigan is a crucial swing state for President Biden, and groups like Listen to Michigan are using their leverage to push him to change his approach to the Israel-Hamas war. Joining us now from Detroit is Representative Abraham Ayash. He's the majority floor leader for the Michigan House of Representatives and part of that chamber's Democratic leadership, and he's a supporter of the Listen to Michigan campaign. Representative, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Representative, the group Listen to Michigan aimed to get at least 10,000 uncommitted votes in yesterday's primary. Notably, that's close to the margin that Hillary Clinton lost Michigan by in 2016. 
Beyond the vote number, what's the main goal of Listen to Michigan and this broader campaign? Look, we are a group of people that are focused on uh, pushing a Democratic Party to be anti-war, to be pro-peace, and to put an end to the suffering that we've seen unfold over the last 140-plus days. Uh, the only way that we can achieve peace in that region is to stop the bombing of any innocent man, woman, and child. And uh, this is a movement to save lives. And I think yesterday demonstrated that this is not an Arab-specific issue. It's not a Muslim-specific issue. But there is a multi-generational, extremely diverse coalition behind this push for President Biden to lead with moral clarity and demand a ceasefire to stop the suffering in that region. Now, your district includes Hamtramck and parts of Detroit. What have you heard from your constituents about the president's policies around the war? You know, I think people are, are incredibly frustrated. When, when, you th- when you think about all the levers of democracy that people are supposed to use, protesting, lobbying, uh, and calling on their elected officials to change course on policies you, you disagree with, and when the polling reflects that what you agree with is what the majority of Americans agree with and calling for a ceasefire in Michigan, 74% of people support it, uh, you begin to grow jaded with the democratic process. So this was an attempt to sort of revive that and say, your voice still matters in this process. Let's leverage our votes to use this as a window to allow this administration to course correct, to save lives. And uh, there are folks that want to see our, our nation lead with that moral clarity and say, we are not going to fund initiatives that are bombing hospitals, bombing schools, and killing innocent men, women, and children. And this is our chance to hopefully see that course correction by President Biden. You met with some of the president's advisors in early February. You told the Associated Press afterward the meeting was, quote, intense, but direct. What did you tell them? You know, we've been very clear about what, what we want to see more than words and more than platitudes. Uh, we, we, while we appreciate the dialogue, the deeds are what, what is important. We want to see a permanent ceasefire, a restoration of aid to the people of Gaza, and ending this uh, unconditional military aid to Israel. Um, it is... Uh, it is insane to think about that we are giving money to a country that uh, is committing war crimes uh, and Netanyahu consistently shows that he does not respect or dignify the humanity of Palestinians and quite frankly does not respect the United States of America. Uh, He sort of just sees us as uh, his unlimited ATM and, and then takes American taxpayer money to do things that are antithetical to what the United States should be standing up for. And given what was discussed, what were your takeaways from that meeting? You know, I was very clear with them that we would not engage further unless we saw tangible steps of changing the course on policy with this particular issue. And uh, we told them that it, you're coming in a little bit late. You know, it, would, it was not a surprise that they showed up 18 days before the February 27th primary. Um, And we said for 140 days, we had been begging and pleading this administration to do something. And uh, we are now starting to see some of that shift in in the president's language and in the public positions that the White House is taking. But the fact of the matter still remains. There are more people dying every single day in Gaza than than any other conflict since World War II. And we need to see that come to a halt. And the United States is the only country in the world that has the leverage to stop this from happening today. And we are hoping that after speaking with them, after engaging with them, and now leveraging our political power, that there's going to be an opportunity for 
uh, a change so that we can have peace and we can save lives. We got this message from Victor who says, I am not a Michigan voter, but I urge those voting uncommitted to remember not voting for Biden is voting for Trump. And voting for Trump is choosing the man that started his presidency, banning people based on their religious beliefs. Representative, this is a sentiment shared by people in your own party, including Governor Gretchen Whitmer. How do you respond to people who are Democratic voters and say this is about choosing not to have Trump back in office? I think that's a question for the president of the United States. We have made it clear what we believe is is important. And I tell you, as somebody who was directly impacted by the Muslim ban, my parents were immigrants from from Yemen. We had filed, my, my mother petitioned to bring her brother into the United States. He was killed three days before the travel ban was signed by an airstrike. So this hits close to home. So I think anyone that tries to suggest that we don't know the danger and the impact of President Trump is a bit insulting. What I will tell you is this. We know that the United States can and should lead with moral clarity, and we should not be funding any effort that is killing innocent people. And the question that should be asked is not to the voters, but to the candidate. You know, when I run for office, I don't tell people, vote for me because the other guy is far worse. I try to give them a message that inspires. I try to share a policy and a vision that folks can can get on board with. And if that's not the case, then I have to really address what the situation is. I tell you what, if I had an opportunity where voters got to tell me what they're not satisfied with, and I didn't take advantage of that, I mean, that would be a foolish endeavor. I see a moment where the president can listen to the, the will of the people, heed their calls and say, I had a window nine months before an election to listen to Michigan, a critical swing state, and they said to me, we are dissatisfied with the way we are engaging in, in, in this genocide and we are complicit in it. Now there's an opportunity to change course. And the question has to be on the president. Is he willing to save democracy or will he continue to allow Benjamin Netanyahu to go down this tyrannical, far-right, anti-human path that has killed nearly 30,000 Palestinians, 13,000 of them which have been children? So that is the real focus of, of this movement is what is the president going to do and how is he going to earn the rights, the, the, the votes of the people, and save democracy. And I still believe there's a pathway forward. While we cannot bring back the 30,000 that have passed away, we can certainly prevent another 30,000 innocent men, women, and children from being killed by U.S.-funded and U.S.-supplied weaponry. At this point, Representative, is it enough for President Biden to call for a ceasefire? Is, is that enough, or are you looking for more from the administration? It, look, it is always the right time to, to call for an end to violence and to call for an end to the destruction. But we also have to look at the toll of the damage that we've seen. 80 plus percent of civilian infrastructure completely decimated by the, the IDF and, and Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, extremist campaign and, and, and administration. Uh, we need to see uh, humanitarian aid restored to Gaza. That means UNRWA, who has demonstrated that they are the ones that can get the resources to the people directly. They have to get that funding back. And we have to re- help rebuild Gaza. You know, The same taxpayer money that bombed these places, now the United States has to lead and say we are going to rebuild. But, but what, needs to happen between to now and no- what needs to happen between now and November? Because that, that what you're describing, is a, a much longer pathway forward. So, so what would you need to see? before November to make you support the president? 
so I think voters have to voters are not are not going to be transactional in in this way. It's not well. We need to see this much infrastructure rebuilt, and then maybe we'll reconsider your vote. What we need to see is a commitment to peace and a commitment to change course once and for all. Is the United States going to have a serious repositioning of how we decide to give Israel uh, funding? Is the United States going to change its position in terms of pushing for statehood and reining in Benjamin Netanyahu, who has shown he does not respect the United States leaders and does not respect the, the U.S. in not using our weapons and not using our, our uh, resources and support to commit war crimes? If the United States is not going to change course after we have seen one of the deadliest wars since World War II on innocent uh, civilians, then the question has to be asked, what more will it take? And, and it is my hope that this president can see that and recognize that there is still time to bring people together and keep folks uh, on board with this idea of um, America, but to suggest that those that are pro-peace and anti-war are somehow pro-Trump is just unacceptable. That's Abraham Ayash. He represents Michigan's 9th House District, which includes Hamtramck and parts of Detroit. Representative, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Free Palestine. Let's head to a quick break here, but we'll be back with more from you and our guests in a moment. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. And let's welcome some new voices to the conversation. Joining us from Detroit is Nargis Rahman. She's a civic reporter for NPR station WDET. Nargis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Maya Berry, executive director of the Arab American Institute. She's here in Washington, D.C. Maya, it's great to have you. Thank you. Happy to be with you. So I want to start by hearing reactions from both of you um, on the result. Briefly, Maya, what are your takeaways from the Republican side with Nikki Haley's uh, vote share of 26 percent? I mean, I think on the Republican side, um, when you look at the specific uh, uh, parts of Michigan that uh, former President Trump needed to secure a greater return, and it it honestly does not bode well for him. Um, Clearly, um, she's struggling to, to stay in the race, but there are areas in the state of Michigan where one would have expected he should have performed better with an eye for what needs to happen in November, and that didn't happen. And for you, Nargis? I would say that I'm not surprised that Donald Trump is leading in the Republican race because there's a lot of key areas in Michigan that still support him. And turning to the Democratic side, specifically around this uncommitted vote of 13 percent, Maya, what do you make of that result? Uh, I think it's an extraordinary statement um, of a grassroots movement that came together to demonstrate to President Biden uh, a community's uh, broad opposition to his policies in support of a uh, ongoing genocide in Gaza. Um, I, I, I've been spent some time looking at different spin, but if you sit down and honestly just look at the data points, uh, it's pretty clear that it was successful. And more importantly, in some ways, it's also pretty clear that the coalition that came together is much broader than the state's um, um, highly organized and highly effective Arab American constituency. Uh, it's very clear the Biden coalition uh, is struggling on this issue. Nargis, for you? 
I would say that um, in November, it looked like people were going to sit out the vote. And so it was um, quickly put together this campaign to get at least 10,000 votes. And so that goal has been exceedingly met. And so people are watching what that means for the future. Maya, your organization, the Arab American Institute, polled Arab American voters across the country in the weeks following the October 7th attack by Hamas. What were some of the key findings? It was an extraordinary um, um, take on this particular poll. We put it into the field October 23rd, so pretty pretty soon after the, the October 7th attacks and the ensuing response from the state of Israel. And uh, President Biden's uh, approval... Um, uh, not approval, actually. President Biden's support in 2020 among Arab Americans nationally was at 59%. Uh, in our poll, uh, it had dropped to 17%, uh, a pretty significant increase. A- and I would suggest that in Michigan, actually, um, the president performed better than 59% among Arab Americans. There are some precincts in Michigan where the president's support in 2020 is closer to you know 80 and 90%. And to see that kind of decline was, was pretty extraordinary. Uh, if I may, Actually, though, I do want to comment on something that your caller uh, just noted about not being a single-issue constituency, because I think that's a really important point in this conversation. Arab Americans, when we poll Arab Americans, and we've been doing so since the mid-1990s, and we ask them about their priorities, in April um, of last year, we conducted a poll, and, and the top four issues were gun violence, the budget deficit, jobs in the economy, and climate change. So not surprisingly, um, very much like other Americans on these issues. And I think that the reason one has to be concerned about the uncommitted vote in the state of Michigan and and the current climate around this is that you have a constituency that actually supported President Biden, supported him in the campaign, supported him around issues he was advocating for, including hate crimes, um, uh, securing, I mean, a category for the census. So this has been a particular disappointment. Nargis, the Biden campaign, not the administration, first sent representatives to Michigan in late January to speak with Arab American and American Muslim leaders. What happened with that first meeting? Well, before the administration met, um, you know, Arab American leaders said that we're not speaking to people who are looking at us just as votes rather than voices. And there was a lot of pushback about uh, meeting with uh, people who weren't ready to call for a ceasefire or even acknowledge the Arab American vote or the Muslim vote. Um, At the same time, there had been efforts before that in November by the abandoned Biden campaign. There were protests and rallies across Metro Detroit asking or trying to get that um, voice out into the streets. The abandoned Biden campaign, which is different from the Listen to Michigan campaign, with some overlap, was saying that we are sure, you know, as early as November, they were saying we are not voting for Biden. We don't exactly know what we're going to do leading up to the general election or the primary at that point. Um, Then in February, they also held a press conference when Biden came to meet with the UAW and other voters in Michigan. um, And they said, you know, he's still not listening to us and we're still not we're not ready to talk to him until he understands our concerns and calls for a permanent ceasefire before we can sit down and talk. But they were also pushing people to go out and vote. And so earlier in November last year, there was this feeling that people were not planning on voting and sitting out the, the election for the primaries. However, by February, they, there was a large push of overall 
from both campaigns, abandon Biden, and then the Listen to Michigan campaign rolled out shortly after that, both saying we want people to show up at the election ballots and make their voices heard that way. Well, a couple of weeks after the campaign sent representatives to Michigan, the administration met in Michigan with local political leaders, including Representative Abraham Ayaz, who we heard from earlier in the program. Maya, in terms of outreach, how has this administration been doing in Michigan? Regrettably, I don't think it's been doing particularly well with regards to outreach uh, to Arab Americans generally and and certainly in Michigan. Uh, The mistake was to suggest that political meetings could happen uh, before policy meetings had happened. um, And I think that's the reason that you saw it play out the way that it did. Um, And, you know, it's been a it's it's been an approach that's conflated Arab Americans and American Muslims. And I think it's important to understand for your listeners, while there's certainly overlap, um, um, Arab Americans are an ethnic constituency and American Muslims, um, a plurality of them are actually uh, black. Um, so it's this conflation of, of Arabs and, and Muslims that sometimes plays out. And, and the Biden administration has sort of taken an approach that's prioritized and from, from our perspective, frankly, one over the other. And I don't think that's been particularly helpful. So to show up in Michigan to uh, then want to do Arab American uh, engagement when you've not addressed the broader policy concerns of Arab Americans since October 7th is an issue. Uh, the other point I would, I would make, though, is I think there's a distinct difference between the Bannon Biden and the Listen to Michigan campaigns that, that we ought to be aware of. Part of what I think has been particularly uh, important to, to take away from yesterday's results is that the folks that organize the uncommitted effort, the Listen to Michigan campaign, they're generally Democrats who support President Biden and have supported him. Uh, they are looking for ways to, as Mayor uh, Hamoud said, uh, get some hope here by requesting that uh, or demanding that a ceasefire take place and a pivot change on the policy. Policies. Some of the abandoned Biden folks, because we have to kind of just do our due diligence on this, are actually Republicans. So for them to announce abandoning Biden isn't necessarily anything groundbreaking. Um, and, and I just think that's something to keep in mind. Well, you mentioned Abdullah Hamoud. He's the mayor of Dearborn and, and one of the state's prominent Arab American leaders. He wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times in February titled, I'm the mayor of Dearborn, Michigan, and my city feels betrayed. And he describes the grief his constituents have felt since October 7th. He writes, quote, what compounds the constant fear and mourning is a visceral sense of betrayal. In the past three federal elections, Arab American voters in Michigan have become a crucial and dependable voting bloc for the Democratic Party. And we were part of the wave that delivered for Joe Biden four years ago. But this fact seems long forgotten by our candidate as he calls for our votes once more, while at the same time selling the very bombs that Benjamin Netanyahu's military is dropping on our family and friends, end quote. I'm curious to hear from both of you the significance of this type of messaging from a local elected leader to the president. Nargis? I would say that, you know, Mayor Hamoud has been very responsive in a lot of the the pushback that's been coming to Dearborn. Uh, you may also recall the Wall Street Journal article talking about Dearborn being the American jihad capital, which is very resounding to 9-11 and the fears that this community has been um, dealing with for over two decades and the the kind of messaging around Arab American and Muslim voters, if they're active and voicing their concerns, somehow they're othered. And so when looking at the bigger picture, um, Mayor Hamoud is somebody who a lot of people feel like takes that uh, responsibility of being Arab American and Muslim and being able to 
put his, you know, words where his, his his actions to his words and and do something about that, whether that's saying something on the X platform, whether that's talking to national platforms about the concerns of his community and being very cognizant that what is happening in Michigan is also happening across the U.S., across other minority communities as well. So he is somebody who feels, you know, that there is a need to have these conversations in multiple platforms. I think his frustration really showed in that New York Times op-ed due to some of the literature that has been floating around about uh, Michigan communities for a long time. And to say that really he he wants to see action. And that's what a lot of people in Michigan are feeling right now. I want to talk about what happens between now and November. If the Biden administration were to call for what these campaigners are asking for, a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, Nargis, what's the likelihood that campaigns like Listen to Michigan stay past Michigan's primary and and past November. Is is this now a new political movement in the state? I think we'll have to wait and see because right now I feel like everything is kind of folding, unfolding um, as things move along. But they are uh, saying right now that they're, um, you know, very proud of being able to attain these votes and be able to send an uncommitted representative to the national convention in Chicago. And that for them is a success at this point. However, in November, it's it's hard to say what will exactly happen until that point. And as Maya said uh, earlier, a permanent ceasefire is the bare minimum that people are looking for. And because this uh, campaign is really rooted in the democratic um, uh, pro- the democratic uh, process and the voting um election uh, people who are voting in the Democratic uh, side of things, they are looking for President Biden to take action, and they're really waiting to see if he is going to do that before November. Uh, It seems like this campaign is taking off nationally as well because there are other people who are here in Michigan watching this campaign and trying to copy some of the efforts that were done in three weeks to get these voters to go out to the election polls. Right. There are other uncommitted groups popping up outside of Michigan. For example, there's uncommitted Minnesota ahead of that state's primary on March 5th, Super Tuesday. Maya, how much spillover into other swing states do you anticipate from this campaign in in Michigan? I don't think anybody can replicate what happened in Michigan for a variety of reasons, including the uniqueness of of an open primary and the ability to cast your ballot as uncommitted. Uh, There are nine scenarios where President Biden uh, can win this election in November. Uh, Six of those require the state of Michigan. So I think there's a uh, there's just an unprecedented level of um, uh, issues coming together here. The highest concentration of Arab Americans in the entire country, the level of, of support that we're seeing for a ceasefire call from a broad coalition of, of folks. Uh, but I will say that when you look at the remaining toss-up states, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, um, all four of those that are toss-up states are in the top 20 in terms of the number of Arab American demographic information in the country. So I I want to make the point every Americans are going to be deeply concerned about this, but also the broader coalition is deeply concerned about it. That's Maya Berry. She's executive director of the Arab American Institute in Washington, D.C. Also with us, Nargis Rahman, the civic reporter for NPR station WDET in Detroit. Nargis, Maya, thanks to you both. Remember to check out 1A+. When you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free, and you're supporting our work. Go to plus.npr.org slash the1a to find out more. Today's producer was Michael Falero. 
This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. without relying on your radio? Visit NPR.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at NPR.org. Former President Trump is in serious legal trouble. And at the same time, he wants his old job back. It's a really big story, but with different trials in multiple states, with plea deals, testimony, gag orders, it's also really hard to follow. So we created Trump's Trials, a new NPR podcast where we break down the big news from each case and talk about what it means for democracy in weekly episodes. I'm Scott Detrow. Check out Trump's Trials from NPR. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.